Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Darrick. Hello, Ben. Hello, Gabe. Every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, at this point when we're all locked down at home, when quarantine and the coronavirus, COVID-19, is sweeping the world... We'll be reviewing two classic twin movies about an unprecedented disease that infects the globe. It's Contagion versus Perfect Sense. Let the infection begin. All right, Gabe. (laughs) Nice. I'm trying to, yeah. It's topical. Very topical. Very clever. Sure. Okay. So Gabe and I thought it was nap time to do a bit of a twin movies run on films that are inspired by our current health crisis around the world and also touching our fears as well. Some of these films give a very realistic portrayal of something very similar to the COVID-19 crisis and other films are a more extreme aversion. So this is our second run in our COVID-19 special series of twin movies. So let's start with Contagion, which was released on the 9th of September 2011. Here's the synopsis from the Internet Movie Database. Healthcare professionals, government officials, and everyday people find themselves in the midst of a pandemic as the CDC works to find a cure. So, Gabe, did you originally catch Contagion when it was released at the cinemas? Or were you like one of the many people in recent times who's actually gone to iTunes and made this film all of a sudden nine years after the fact? Very, very popular. Um, I am both of those categories. I saw it at the movies and I have also watched it very recently. It's kind of a bizarre sort of behaviour to be amidst this COVID-19 crisis and be like, oh, I should watch a, a apocalyptic pandemic movie. Although, spoilers, they find a vaccine at the end of Contagion. It's still, it's still a kind of bizarre, bizarre behaviour in a way. Don't you think? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, When I saw this film at the time, I recall the reviews were very positive in actually acknowledging how realistic the betrayals were in this film of this disease. It was based on SARS in some respects. And um, is it H1N1? I think it is. Yeah, H1N1. So the reviews, you know, were very positive saying, look, Sonnenberg's captured a film that is medically correct. And there were a lot of quotes from pandemic specialists who also acknowledge the authentic portrayal of the disease and how it unfold and the political reaction to it and so on. And to watch the film now when we're living through something very similar as a rewatch, nine years after the fact, um, it is odd. And I understand why people are doing it because they want to try and get a snapshot into the future and also perhaps learn about how to handle this disease, given given that this film was considered to be such an accurate portrayal of a very similar disease. But it is a case of almost self-flagellation, isn't it? Like, it's not a film of escapism in any way. No, and maybe it's that thing where, like you say, in the end, they do find a vaccine and it does turn out all right. So maybe there is some sort of comfort there, or at least an understanding of the whole situation. You know, at the end of Contagion, they do that little montage of how the disease was started and it was like, you know, the bat and the pig. And, yeah, it's eerily similar, I suppose. I I suppose for a lot of people the idea of watching this now would also be repellent, but um, that's not us, is it? 
That's not us. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> We're, you know, hitting the zeitgeist and riding that wave. So later on after Contagion was released back in 2011, about a month later on the 7th of October, Perfect Sense was released. Here's the synopsis from IMDb. A chef and a scientist fall in love as an epidemic begins to rob people of their sensory perceptions. So, Gabe, talk me through when, where and how you first watched Perfect Sense. I think I must have seen this on DVD years ago and it sort of weirdly faded from my memory and then I watched it again recently, um, obviously for this podcast, but I have no idea if this got a cinema release or... You know, we were we were chatting about. It, I've chatted to people about it, and a lot of people haven't even heard of this this film whatsoever. Um, it's sort of weirdly a bit of a curiosity or something, I guess. Um, did you see it at the cinema? No, I hadn't even heard of this film until you mentioned it to me as a potential twin movie double, which is so bizarre because I love Ewan McGregor, I love Eva Green, and I really enjoyed Hell or High Water the director's, David McKenzie's most recent film. And I'm a cinephile and somehow this film just slipped through the cracks. I just don't understand because it was only nine years ago and we weren't at that stage where, you know, mature, mid-range budgeted films were all heading straight to Netflix and you no longer find them in the cinema. Maybe it was the time when we were still sort of finding our feet and streaming wasn't as ubiquitous. So, if you didn't get a theatrical release, you just vanished entirely. But I had no awareness, excuse the pun, of this film at all. And so I only actually watched it hours ago, immediately before this podcast. So for me, this definitely was a curiosity and I'm stunned that this film has had so little attention, which we'll get to, I think, in the uh, Hollywood shallow dive into the history of the making of this film. So why don't we jump to a review of these films, mate? Mm-hmm. Actually, before that, let's do a bit of a comparison between them as to how we got here. Both films released at the same time, which is the whole theme of this podcast series. Contagion's backstory is interesting. This was made at a time when Steven Soderbergh and the screenwriter Scott Z. Burns were collaborating a bit. And it was basically after they'd just worked on The Informant together, another film with Matt Damon, And they were going to do a biography, but they decided after Scott Z. Burns became quite interested in just how to depict the rapid spread of a virus, to dig a bit deeper into the SARS outbreak and the 2009 flu pandemic. So Burns consulted with representatives from the World Health Organization, the WHO, and they started making this film uh, in Hong Kong on a quite low budget. Actually, no, it was actually a $60 million budget on the red camera with Sodenberg acting as the DOP. And because the film is very grounded, it was very important for Sodenberg to shoot on location, so not in sets, but actually on location in different countries to really ground the film. I think one of the biggest, most interesting things about this film is that it has aged incredibly well, which we'll get to in our reviews. And one of the reasons for that was the incredible research that Burns spent with experts in the field. But one thing which he probably didn't anticipate was the political climate we're living in right now and the likely president that would, might, that was, would be in charge during this crisis. Now, jumping to perfect sense, this film is such a curiosity, Gabe, that 
It's really hard to actually find much on it at all. It's written by a Danish screenwriter, Kim Fups Akerson, and uh, it was shot in Glasgow, Mexico City, and Kenya. But beyond that, it's really hard to find much about it at all. Um, it premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in 2011. But beyond that, it sort of flew right under the radar. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of unsurprising that that was the case in a way. I mean, both these films are very interesting, but they're definitely very different flavoured in terms of, you know, their their depictions of a global pandemic and the sort of tone that the, or the stories that the films tell. I like you say that um, contagion's like sort of hyper-realistic depiction of a cross-section of all of these people that are affected versus perfect sense is very narrowly viewed um, uh, uh, depiction of just these two people. And I guess perfect sense also takes some, I don't know, what's the term, uh, uh, is a bit more fictional in its depiction of the virus. Uh, that is to say, like, it's a bit, uh, it's, it doesn't feel like a real virus. Do you know what I mean? How would you describe that? It's a, you know, it's not like SARS. It's something else. Yep, that's a perfect opportunity, which leads us into our review of both films. You're right, uh, they do treat pandemics very differently. Starting with Contagion, that's much more of a grounded portrayal, whereas in Perfect Sense, it's closer as a story to being a science fiction parable. So it's got the basic elements of how a disease would work, but it's very much an accelerated timeline and the symptoms of the disease are very fantastic and extreme. So let's start with Contagion perhaps as to what we think it did right. Talk me through what worked and what didn't for you for Sodenberg's virus pandemic film. I mean, I think you could fairly say nearly all of this movie works. Um, I suppose I'm, I might be biased. I'm a huge fan of Soderberg. Um, and again, he's one of those directors that we often talk about you know, when we were chatting about that Danny Boyle film yesterday, we were talking about Danny Boyle as the sort of director who can make such a breadth of movies. Soderbergh's very similar. So I'm always interested to see the next Soderbergh movie or what Soderbergh uh, will do next. I, I love the photography. I love the direction. I love the performances. I love the editing. I love the writing. Um, weirdly, and I'm sure we'll get into it a bit more, the only thing that I don't get, like a lot of people, is the whole Marianne Cotillard plot. So I don't know if you can explain that one to me. Uh, it's just a, it's just a. He makes these movies with such a great momentum to them. You know, it's, they always just feel really propulsive. There's never like a dull spot. They feel really pa- like pared down in that there is just like how do you tell a story as simply as possible with the minimum amount of screen time? And this is a big story. You know, there's a lot of characters in this, and they all feel like they get plots and arcs of their own, which is a pretty, pretty amazing feat, I think. It's pretty incredible to be able to have really engaging characters with believable backstories when you're spending such a short time with them in a story like this where you've got overarching stories, connected stories. Sodenberg did this before with Traffic, and I love these types of films where you see a major event through different perspectives and everyone is linked in some ways. In some respects, a film about a pandemic is almost perfect for that. Because by that very definition, a virus links people to each other. In traffic, we sort of see how 
the drugs are created right through to their distribution and their consumption by users. So you see the ecosystem or the life cycle of drugs. In Lord of War, we see something similar in the opening credits, how they create a bullet and where that bullet ends up. This film is just a perfect subject to explore that narrative style. And it's amazing how these characters come on for such a short time, yet you totally buy into their world. And he does maintain, as you say, a propulsive narrative going forward. But also you do feel emotional engagement at the same time. That's actually really hard tension to balance out because often by having a propulsive story, what often is traded out at the expense of that is characterization or emotional engagement. So it's a real testament to Soderbergh's ability to try and make you believe everyone on screen at that point in time and be totally empathetic to their situation. Totally. I mean, it doesn't hurt that he has a fantastic cast. You know, when you're killing Gwyneth Paltrow in the first, you know, four minutes of the of the movie. Spoilers. Well, yeah, go watch the movie. But, hey, there's still 98 more minutes to go. Um, you know, Matt Damon, Jude Law, uh, John Hawkes, Lawrence Fishburne. Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet. I mean, Kate Winslet's really great in this. Um, her character. Kate Winslet is fantastic. Yeah. Her character, her performance, and then those final shots of her character. So spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen Contagion. Spoilers for real life with COVID-19. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the just the passion of her character I think is so important to understand and see at this point in time when we have our medical professionals, our doctors, our nurses, our specialists risking their life to save other people, risking their life to save people who are not adhering to physical distancing and are hanging out at coronavirus parties together and on the beach, like in Bondi and Sydney, and perhaps not actually understanding the contagious part of COVID-19. You've got this character who's there putting her life on the line, interviewing, she's wearing the right gear and so on, but obviously she's more exposed just by definition of being in their company. And she passionately wants to try and solve it. And there's that scene where she wakes up with a cough in a hotel room and it just breaks your heart because she wakes up coughing and then you sort of sense at the same speed as she does that she might have actually contracted the disease. And when she goes to the bathroom, it's all in one shot, so you're sort of seeing her anxiety unfold unedited in real time. And she takes the thermometer, tests her temperature, and you hear her saying, no, 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 no. And just that awful realisation that she's caught it. And then to the final shot where her colleague, who's dressed in a hazmat suit, is looking down on the ground at her and she's wrapped in plastic, she's dead. Her eyes are wide open, I think, and her face is behind that plastic. And it's always a really disconcerting feeling to see someone's face behind plastic because you always think of suffocation, but she's dead, so, of course, the plastic isn't moving and her face is white and you can sort of see like the sort of veins in her face. Um, And that's only, what, 30 minutes into the film? Like, it seems to happen reasonably quickly, maybe 45 minutes into the film. So they've already killed off Paltrow. Now they've killed off Kate Winslet. You're already feeling this sense of dread because this disease does not discriminate between stars that you know and other people. It's just ruthlessly and relentlessly pushing through these countries and spreading at this rapid rate throughout the world. Yeah, it's a really fantastic subversion of, I think, an audience's expectation that her character, Dr. Erin Mears, will be, 
the hero of the story because, you know, when we first meet her, she's incredibly proactive and she's, you know, depicted as the smartest woman in the room. She's incredibly knowledgeable. She's very brave. And then the film kills her off and it creates this, I guess, this sort of wonderful sense of uncertainty and also that it's not necessarily a movie that will, you know, in inverted commas, play by the rules that you usually expect from this type of movie, you know, Outbreak, that Wolfgang Peterson movie, doesn't kill Rene Russo off 30 minutes in. They make sure to have that sort of sappy love story throughout. And I love Soderbergh for doing that type of thing, I guess. I think it's really bold. It's a bold move. Yeah, I always think about in movies that classic case of the film with Kurt Russell and what's his name? Action star from the 80s. Oh, Seagal. Seagal. Executive decision, dude. Executive decision. Great movie. Exactly. And you always reference that film as the film to watch where they take a star and they subvert the audience's expectations by killing that star off really early on. And this does that twice, which is so gutsy. And I agree. I think that Burns and Soderbergh did a great job of killing off Paltrow so you think, oh, well, that's the surprise. They can't kill off anyone else. And they kill off the ostensible saviour played by Kate Winslet It's fantastic. I think it's a really great representation of what would happen in real life. And we're already seeing that same thing unfold around the world right now where where some of these noticeable, influential uh, figureheads of the medical community, the people who are working 80-hour weeks and the people who perhaps are at the front line and discovered the true impact of COVID-19 in real life have died. It's an absolute tragedy and that's just one of many examples of what this film gets right in relation to COVID-19. In fact, on that point, tell me what elements of this film really struck home to you that perhaps you wouldn't have noticed as much before this current pandemic in real life, but on re-watching Contagion now, ring true? Um, I think a key one is the first time I watched it, Jude Law's character just seemed like a, I don't know, just a a semi-stock snake oil salesman, grifter. But looking at the way people have attempted to grift their way through uh, COVID-19, his character, I suppose, suddenly felt particularly resonant, um, his accent notwithstanding. We'll get to that. But, um, But him as a villain suddenly seemed kind of a bit more profound, I suppose, this guy selling, what's it called, Forsythia as a cure? Something like that. Yeah. And then, you know, now you read stuff from, you know, I'm not going to name names because fucking they're just scumbags. Um, although actually, weirdly, I saw a, I will name one. Gwyneth Paltrow was in this and she founded Goop and there were some idiot people from her website, Goop. Um, I don't know if this is defamatory and we'll get sued for saying this, who was saying, you know, the coronavirus is no thing and all you need to do is bloody blow tea tree oil up your ass or something. So uh, if that is libelous, you should cut that out, Ben. Well, if they actually were saying that, then that's not libelous. That's just what they said. That's just a factual repeat of what was said. But if that's the case, that's really ironic and weird. I haven't read that myself, but there have been a lot of criticisms made of Goop and a lot of pseudoscience products that they sell. And if that was made, uh, that's so bizarre and ironic, given that this film has Gwen Paltrow die off at the very, very start. And this film is so heavily grounded in actual science. Yeah, I mean, 
I, I should be clear. I don't think their cure was blowing tea tree oil up your ass. It was something else. But it, it certainly was a downplaying of the, the scope of the pandemic and also, you know, pseudoscience. And I suppose that's one of the one of the sort of tragedies of of this, the politicisation of our times and something that this movie gets right. You know, there's that scene where Jude Law's walking along the street and there's the posters of him that are sort of alternately depicting him as a saviour or as a madman. And I think that's quite interesting. What about you? On that point, Gabe, there have been yeah. plenty of claims that many politicians sold shares and profited before the extent of the pandemic was made public. So as is always the case, unfortunately, you know, someone's always going to profit like a vulture in a time of crisis. In fact, that's the moral conundrum of the lead character, the protagonist in Billions. He profits during 9-11 by apparently something like, you know, selling shares too early or something like that and makes all of his money from a tragedy. That's happened in real life. So, yep, it's unfortunate, but people are going to be people, particularly in capitalist societies. Totally. And those senators, you know, Kelly Loeffler and Richard Burr, fucking scumbags. I did, I did when this coronavirus thing start, I did, I did happen to think, oh, I should Google, for instance, who is the largest manufacturer of hazmat suits. And I was like, well, is it immoral for me to, you know, sink a bunch of money into Lakeland Industries who, you know, make, who make hazmat suits? While all the markets are tanking, their shares are jumping, you know, 22% on a Thursday. But I suppose that's just me, an idiot, a regular idiot, and not someone who's receiving confidential briefings. I think we'll all agree we should have all invested in Zoom before this crisis because- Yeah, that's right. That's one of the few companies that's doing very, very well with video conferencing and people- Talk to their grandparents over a glass of wine. That's right. And that's one of the things that those senators started buying a lot of, um, video teleconferencing uh, shares in companies that did that. And I suppose maybe that's one thing that Contagion doesn't have is, you know, it hits all these levels, but maybe it doesn't really get the the scope of kind of profiteering that might happen beyond just Jude Law's kind of fringe blogger. Maybe it didn't anticipate that it would go well beyond that. Well, there are plenty of websites that are doing, you know, what's true, what isn't true, or what is relatable between contagion and COVID-19. What is unique about the disease in contagion is that it, it moves faster than the coronavirus. And also it's it's more deadly in terms of if you actually contract it, you're more likely to die than not. So I guess the focus of the film being a medical thriller is to essentially keep the focus on the disease, whereas what we're discussing now, which is people profiting from a crisis, you know, is like one more step removed and that's just another narrative thread in a film which is already a tapestry of different stories. I guess the Office version, as in Office, the TV show of this, is basically just lots of Zoom calls with people (laughs) working from home, being homeschooled, and having those office-like shenanigans whilst being geographically dislocated and based, you know, on their home desk or kitchen table. Yeah, you're right. And it makes sense to accelerate the disease for the screen because, you know, if there was just scenes of Matt Damon going to the shops and being unable to buy toilet paper or pasta, I mean, that's realistic, but I guess that it would be dull. And maybe you couldn't have even anticipated the sort of humdrum nature of parts of the response to this, those sort of like low-key markers that probably in the grand scheme of things actually add up to something not unlike that this is depicting, but 
yeah, you can you can see why Soderbergh and Scott Z. Burns wanted it all to go quicker because, frankly, it's just it's a movie, you know. And the other funny thing too is that real life is often more boring than fiction, and it would have been so bizarre if Burns had actually predicted there'd be fights over toilet paper in shopping centres. As in, A, people wouldn't believe that would be a realistic response to this crisis, and B, the stakes aren't as high <laughs> as people actually pulling out guns or knives and fighting each other for a can of baked beans or something like that. But that's the sad part of society in real life. It's the humdrum or the disappointing way that humans selfishly react to a crisis in an entirely illogical way which you'd never believe if you, if you saw on screen. To have people fighting over toilet paper and not water or food is something that you couldn't even put in a script because no one would believe humans would be that stupid as they were panicking during a time like this. No, them fighting over drugs, which happens in the movies, totally, very believable. But, I mean, I suppose small details like, you know, Lawrence Fishburne, he he does get inside information. He's presented as quite a a, a moral, thoughtful sort of noble character, but he still, you know, uses that information, that confidential information that he has to warn a few people, which is, you know, gets him removed from command or uh, disciplined later. So there is a nice little bit of um, sort of moral ambiguity there. And I suppose that is believable. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone would be able to say that if they knew something like that was coming, they wouldn't tell you know, their, their their wife or child or whatever. Yeah, I really like that storyline with Lawrence Fishburne because it's so realistic, isn't it? Of course you'd want to tell someone and then you'd say, but don't tell anyone else. And then it's like, okay, well, does his girlfriend tell her parents? Like, where do you contain it? And during this current crisis in real life, we've had this discussion in relation to what would happen in terms of sheltering family if things went totally AWOL. Where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line at your immediate family, at your your wife or husband's family, uh, their kids, their parents, their siblings? Like you're constantly going through this approach of basically having to say, what is my line? So where, where do I not cross it? If I go to the shops, would I push someone? Would I stand back? Would I stop a fight? Would I start a fight? Like I think that's the really interesting part in all of these types of films is that it is just holding everyone's feet to the fire to say, what is your moral crossing point? And everyone's is different. And if you increase the stakes like lack of food or water, then that line moves. So the only character I suppose that gets a sort of a plot that I don't quite get and maybe the short, sh- short thrift, short shrift, what, what is that? Short, short what? Is it a, sh- a shift or a thrift? Short shift thrift. Anyway, is Marion Cotillard's character, who seems like she has quite a undeveloped plot, disappears from the movie for a huge amount of time and kind of, dare I say it, could have been removed entirely from this film. I can't even remember or tell you what her storyline is. Remind me. So she works for the... Does she work for the WHO? Anyway, she goes to China and ends up in a small village and gets kidnapped and then sort of joins with the people who've kidnapped her to boost 
supplies of the vaccine, but it's all quite unclear. And doesn't relate in any way to the main storyline at all. No. Like it's off to the side and while she's there, they don't have her locked down in some sort of basement lab to try and find a cure. She's just there ostensibly hanging out with the village. But I, And basically she's there, I think, as essentially a bargaining tool not actually to do her job of trying to find the cure. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, because they're going to trade her for the vaccine and then she ends up as, a, I guess, a sort of twist. You realise that she has allowed herself to be used as a bargaining chip and she jumps out of the van or whatever. But I don't even remember if she has a scene with any of the other characters in the film or I don't know. It's just a strange plot and I guess the storytelling is so minimal that it requires quite a lot of inference or something. And that's the one thing, I suppose, in the script that doesn't quite work for me. In a film that's so lean and so fast and well told, it just I just don't know why they did they keep it because it was Marion Cotillard, you know? Perhaps they did. And also but because it actually provides a juxtaposition with the moral conundrum faced by Lawrence Fishbourne. So the other guy who kidnaps her he goes one step further. He doesn't just share information. He actually takes a captive and he's a good guy the way he's portrayed initially, the way he's characterised, but essentially a good guy will do bad things. In this case, it's for the better good of his village when forced to, even though ordinarily he'd be a law-abiding international diplomat himself. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, him, uh, the actor who plays him, Chin Han, He's good in the role and Maria Cotillard is, you know, she's good in her role. I guess just as a, as a plot, that maybe was the one thing that didn't work for me. I mean, what about you? Was there anything else in the, the film that didn't quite, quite land for you? No, everything landed. For me, actually, it was a case that things landed harder. Right. So the hand washing, the shots of someone coughing, then going into a train, then walking up the stairs and putting their hand on the handrail and then going to the shops and handling a jar of pickles and then paying with money and then the card gets swiped. I love that stuff. It's a bit like a virus micro version of the Red Violin or those types of films where you follow an object as it goes through different people's hands. And as I mentioned earlier, it's particularly poignant when it's a virus. And when we're in a world right now where we're told to wash our hands for 20 seconds routinely, to go outside and to distance ourselves and to minimise contact and exposure. This film, it's funny because watching it nine years ago, I don't think I would have actually really appreciated the ease of transmission. Sonnenberg does a great job of showing you how it happens and he sells it. But now when I've actually experienced the way that the coronavirus is spreading and the way to minimise the spread and to ensure you don't actually have it on your hands. That carries so much more weight now. Yeah. Um, also, too, hearing someone cough, the very first shots where you see Gwyneth Paltrow in the airport and she's flirting with, I think it's like an ex-lover that she may or may not have disconnected with whilst overseas away from her husband and family, and she kind of coughs once, just a little cough, and we hear someone else cough in the background. And so we get the sense that maybe she just might have jet lag, which is what she says as an excuse for it. But that now is just, it sort of invokes a sense of dread, which I wouldn't have had before. Because if you're outside now, 
uh, or at the shops and you hear someone cough or sneeze, you can't tell me you don't react much more than you would have beforehand, right? Oh, big time. Uh, fun fact, I think the the man on the other end of that telephone call is uh, voiced by Soderbergh himself as the man she's having an affair with. Also, uh, you, you talked about those movies like Red Violin that follow a, follow a thing. A big shout out to uh, 1993's uh, 20 Bucks. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> um, okay, how about we move on to Perfect Sense? Great, let's do it. So, Gabe, what worked for you, what didn't? Walk me through it. Um, I don't know if it's because I watched this amidst this coronavirus thing, but I found this film much, much more, I guess, moving than the first time I watched it or that I remember the first time I watched it. I This is a very different flavour, like we said, to Contagion. But, but in a way, the filmmaking has some stuff in common that I think it's quite an adventurously made movie. I love the the photography and the cutaways and the voiceover and it just sort of all added up to being, I don't know, just a, a really, it was just a great experience just watching it. Yeah. I don't know. I'm still, I guess I feel like I'm sort of still recovering from watching it in a way because I think both you and I have watched it very, very recently, right? You said you just finished watching it. I just finished watching it for the very first time. And I hate to say, I actually fell asleep. I was tired and I was not getting into this film. So let me declare where I stand from the start and show my cards. I was not engaged with this film at the very start. Now, I do confess I was tired, but this film didn't grab me. And this film had everything in its advantage to capture my attention. It had Ewan McGregor. It had Eva Green. It had Mackenzie, the director. It had a cool sci-fi version of Contagion as a concept. And I love that. I love sci-fi. I say sci-fi because it's a heightened reality. That's why I use that term. I mean, you could call it a drama, but the nature of this disease is very improbable. I mean, it's a science fiction disease where, spoilers, you progressively lose each of your senses and the film ends with the last scent, sense being lost. So there isn't a disease that's even comparable around in the history of humankind that is like that. So it's more on the science fi scale. But I was watching it and I wasn't really getting into it because to me there wasn't a strong narrative thread. It Contagion has multiple propulsive strong narrative threads. This one I would say is much more meandering and it's actually closer to being a romantic drama really than a analysis of infection. Is that fair to say? Oh, I would say that it's absolutely a romantic drama, not an analysis of infection whatsoever. I mean, this film, I guess, is not really concerned whatsoever about the the mechanics of the way it's spread or finding a cure. And although Eva Green plays a scientist, that's not really a plot that that matters. You know, it is absolutely, I think, a, a romantic drama. Um, and I think that's very fair to say. The thing about this film is that the virus is the background to it and not the catalyst. And so this couple come together and find each other and fall in love in spite of the virus, not because of it. Whereas Contagion, everyone is linked and brought together by the disease. The disease is front and centre and it is the, the thing that brings everyone together, literally and figuratively. In perfect sense, it's a case that 
can this couple who have just met each other form a relationship and sustain a relationship and build a relationship when they are losing their senses one by one by one and the world is increasingly falling into anarchy? Uh can we jump to the ending, Gabe? But when you say it like that, Ben, it sounds so academic. That's not what the the movie is. <laughs> a bit more than just look. I would say, Ben, your 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 log lining of it is both accurate but ruthless. Well, let me put it this way: uh, she's a scientist, and that doesn't actually feature as part of the film. Now, normally at the end of our reviews, we jump to plot holes and missed opportunities, but let's just accelerate like the coronavirus. Boom straight to that particular part of our combined review now. So to me, that is potentially one of the missed opportunities of the film is that she's a scientist. And by making her a scientist, you think it's going to play more into the storyline than it actually does. For example, she could be on the brink of finding a cure for the disease and she's racing to do that, not just driven by a desire to try and save humanity, but also before perhaps her lover, Ewan McGregor, loses his last sense, sense of sight, for example. Because throughout the film, people start losing their senses. It starts with, I think it's first, it's taste, isn't it, Gabe? Then smell. Uh, smell. Smell. Then taste. Then taste. Then... Hearing. Hearing. Then sight. I don't, I, I don't think they ever lose touch. No, no. So the last... Spoilers if you haven't seen Perfect Sense, and if you haven't seen it, the ending is so good please press stop on this podcast right now and return to listen to it after this because I do think, as much as I'm critical of Perfect Sense, I think the ending is fantastic. And the final scene is when – actually, we should, we should actually uh, go back a step, Gabe, and say before everyone experiences a loss of their sense, they experience an outburst of an emotion. So an example is before losing hearing – everyone experiences like a five-minute window of rage, just absolutely insane aggression. And then they kind of like pass out and wake up and their sense is missing. The final sense they lose, which is sight, is immediately preceded by a moment of of just intense love where everyone just feels affection and desire for everyone around them. And that's the part where our two characters who are driven apart towards the end of the film by that moment of anger and hatred before losing their hearing, they're now brought back together with this intense feeling of love and affection for each other. And they're trying to find each other and they're running around the streets and each other's apartments in a a sense to try and find each other to express that love. And then they finally do at the very end, the last few minutes of the film, and just as they walk to each other, they lose their sight. And then they touch each other and connect and hold each other. And to me, that just broke my heart. It it just gutted me. It almost brought a tear to my eye that these guys were losing each sense. And Ewan McGregor's character is a chef. So, of course, if people lose their sense of taste and smell, that's a bit of a disaster if you're trying to run a restaurant. And But at the end, knowing that they've lost their sight, pretty much means humanity is fucked. Yeah. Everyone is basically like Helen Keller, which I'm not saying in a lighthearted way, like they can't see, they can't hear, they can't smell, they can't taste, they can only touch, which makes it pretty hard for all of humanity to survive, including this couple. 
Yeah, I'm. I'm really glad, I guess, Ben, that by the the end you had you had, you turned around on this movie. But I suppose to your prior point, yes, the movie could have, you know, had a a more I don't know what would you call it. Um, traditional structure, like you say, maybe she's a virologist on the edge of a cure. But to me, I think this this film is, it's not full-blown Terrence Malick art movie, don't get me wrong. Like it's not, you know, all just dappled sunlight. And But it does certainly feel like it's going for something that's a little bit more lyrical. Um, it's more about like kind of emotion. And I think they do a fantastic job of, of capturing the sense of senses you know, with colour and cinematography. Weirdly, this is a kind of bizarre reference, but at, at various points it kept reminding me of that Chris Marker film Sans Soleil. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. What's that about? It's a, oh, how would you describe it? It's a French quasi, is it a documentary? From the ni- early 1980s, which is a meditation sort of on on memory about, you know, recalling the nuances of things. And he has a narrator just kind of explaining in the same way that the narrator in perfect sense just has this kind of very matter-of-a-fact tone but about kind of kind of deep philosophical ideas. I have to say, Sanselay is a very hard movie to, to pin down an easy description of. But, um, yeah, throughout watching Perfect Sense, I just, I just got a little bit of that. I mean, I love the way, for instance, it cuts away to just various small vignettes from around the world, showing other people experiencing the loss of, you know, sight or taste. I thought that was really, really kind of beautiful or poignant. And they were just little snatches. I love those montages that use still frames, uh, still images. I just thought all that was really well done and thoughtful. I agree with you that the film is very lyrical. It's not quite Terrence Malick, but it is a beautiful film with dappled sunlight and it uses visuals to try and convey senses that you can't ordinarily or you can't full stop represent through the screen. It reminded me a lot of Perfume, that film by Tommy Tickfer uh, with, I think, Ben Winslow about a young prodigy who has the capacity, he's like a superpower of smell basically, and he becomes a perfume creator. They've got a name. It's like being a winemaker of perfumes. And it uses visuals to try and convey what you just can't pick up from the original book or from a movie. And this one does a great job of doing the same thing with taste and smell. And because you don't actually have taste and smell of vision coming through the screen, <laughs> it then explains sort of like how people begin to live and consume food in the absence of those. So it's about texture. And so it shows people like eating, for example, a fried prawn whole and because they can't taste that seafood or smell it they're appreciating the the crackle and the textures on their tongue and so food becomes an experience where you just you feel it in the absence of being able to smell it and taste it and that's really interesting and the film does a great job in trying to visually represent the before and after of that sensory loss. But Ben, yeah, what what I think is really interesting about that is we talked about perfect sense being not necessarily a realistic depiction of a pandemic. But I think what it does incredibly well is each time after the the you know people lose one of these senses, there's a, a sort of moment of panic and then a kind of weird return to a level of normalcy or adaptation to that. And I think on some level that feels quite true. You know how quickly... Yeah, I agree 100%. Yeah, definitely. And 
you know, maybe that's the science to this film's fiction, the low-key representations of, you know, like you just explained the way the, the restaurant shifts to deliver a new type of product. Um, and in the same way, you know, like we were joking about among, amongst COVID-19, the way people have just shifted to working from home, that the new normal actually occurs quite quickly. Oh, there are entire stories from around the world um, in the spirit of what you're saying where restaurants now have had to change their entire business model and only this morning I was reading about this restaurant that's a two-hat restaurant in Western Australia and they just can't package their food. And the, in the words of the owner and the head chef, they can't do Uber Eats-style delivery because their food isn't designed to sit in a paper bag in the, in the, on the back of someone's bike. It's too delicate. It's not conducive to doing home delivery. So what they're doing is overnight they have to change their entire business model to basically be a provador. So they're basically now providing the ingredients to their meals, which they used, a bit like HelloFresh really, <laughs> um, to people at home. Or they're making one of their complicated meals, but sort of half making it. So making it up until the baking stage and then delivering it to you. And all you've got to do at that stage is to put it in the oven on 180 degrees and let it cook for 50 minutes. And that way you get the same fresh meal that they would deliver in a restaurant, albeit with them doing half the work beforehand. So that's happened really quickly. I guess if you lose 90% of your business overnight, you're pretty freaking motivated to try and adapt quickly. And you're right, this film does that. Like we see the restaurant having to, the next day, start thinking about how do we cook and present food differently when like most of the diners here can't smell it or taste it. And, yeah, you're right. That is, I think, the science in this story, that the world doesn't just go to shit like, uh, you know, the Book of Eli or um, 28 Days Later or something like that straight away. People have to pay the bills, pay the landlord, pay for their assets, and so they just quickly adapt and try together holistically as a society, as a community, keep things going as much as they possibly can. And... It's only towards the end of the film when I think we're about three senses down. I think it's after hearing that's when the shit hits the fan and we start seeing upturn shopping trolleys and sort of blood on the sidewalk and a, a greater sense of disharmony unfolding. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I suppose that's perhaps not as realistic. You would think if there was a global pandemic that caused everyone to lose their sense of smell, there would be more troops on the street or something, you know. But um, but nonetheless, yeah, I think that was quite, quite interestingly observed in the film. So, Ben, could we chalk it up to maybe you were just tired when you were watching the first half? No, I think it comes back to I was looking for something more naturalistic and Contagion set such a high bar that Perfect Sense felt slight or lighter compared to that, which in this current climate where I was seeking something that was a bit more grounded, Contagion just fit that bill better. But like I said, at the end, and it only matters at the end of a film how you feel about it, and at the end I was really on board Perfect Sense. And I do like science fiction as well and I do like, you know, accelerated emotions. And actually we did mention this, but something which I think Perfect Sense is trying to do, I'm not sure how successfully it does it, I'd say partially, is in each of those moments where you have an emotional reaction before the loss of a sense, they're arguably like the peak times in a relationship, but amplified. 
So in any relationship, people have affection, they argue, they have sex, they miss people, and all those things are experienced in this tiny window of time. So if you start dating someone and all of a sudden they're swearing at you and dropping the C-bomb and so on, that to many people in dysfunctional relationships or in a really bad fight in a good relationship might happen one, two years, three years later. But in this situation, they're basically experiencing a rapid relationship occurring in a compressed period of time. And that's a pretty cool idea. I think they could have done a bit more with it, but I like that idea that that's probably why they get to the loving point faster because of those emotional reactions coming out. Mm, interesting. All right, let's uh, kind of tie a bow on it. But before we do, were there any interesting observations in terms of coincidence or ripoff? And uh, which film do you think is aged better in the last nine years? Um, well, I mean, I think Contagion probably feels more prescient. But I think this is, for me, a great example of, you know, sometimes you want hamburger and sometimes you want steak. Although I'm not sure which film is the hamburger and which is the steak. They're just different flavours. Yeah, I agree. I, these films uh, are great to compare in this fun little podcast in terms of having similar ideas, but they are different. They're not trying to be like each other. And they're just taking a very different lens to the idea of a devastating pandemic, but seeing it with a different perspective. And so that, I think they work differently than each other. For me, Contagion is the film I enjoyed watching more the second time. Perfect sense I've only seen once, but after that heartbreaking ending, I actually want to go back and watch it again. So if, for me, they're both great films. If you were to say to someone, hey, who doesn't want to watch four hours of pandemic movies, which would you watch first if you were doing a Contagion Perfect Sense double? Because in a way, I think that'd make quite an interesting double. Would you open with Perfect Sense or close with Perfect Sense? Well, that's the thing. Contagion ends with hope, even though the film is devastating throughout. At the end, they discover a cure. So at least it's more uplifting in a sense, like you'd actually translate that to your real life and think, oh, okay, like we'll get through this. Perfect Sense actually is devastating at the end because if they find each other, their love is confirmed and now they're blind and they're probably going to die of starvation. So <laughs> I would argue that Perfect Sense is sort of the entry point in. And my sales pitch would be imagine Gattaca meets Contagion. That's perfect sense for me. That's the pitch. Oh, nice. Yeah, because both films are set in a science fiction world. Both films explore love unfolding during other events. Um, they're both quite lyrical. They both have fantastic visuals and they're kind of like set in the you know five years in the future or now-ish. I think Gattaca is probably set more like 10 years or 20 years in the future. It's deliberately not defined, whereas Perfect Sense is more set right now and it's just a fictional alternative timeline. But they, they feel the same. That's the clearest way I can express it. Gattaca has a sense of inevitability about it and Perfect Sense does as well. Mm, nice, nice. All right, let's jump to a bit of trivia. So let's start with Contagion, shall we? I'll start with something light. Elliot Gould. Do you recognise Elliot Gould from any of Steven Sonnenberg's other movies? I recognise Elliot Gould from not only those but lots of other movies, Ben. Come on. Like Friends, the TV show, playing uh, Ross and- Where else would you know him from? <laughs> well, he was also in the Oceans franchise. 
of course, Ocean's 11, 12, and 13. It's weird to think that he was once such a really super cool actor, you know, and like Roger Altman's The Long Goodbye. Like he just exuded a kind of coolness, but now he's sort of always just like, I don't know, like sort of ever so slightly embarrassing old guy. That's right. I mean, he played that character in Friends, I think, over that 10-year run, and that kind of, I think, has recharacterized him uh, as a character actor and as a bit of a dag. I mean, he's not quite... Is it Eugene Levy, who's the guy playing the dad from the American Pie films? He's not in that category of daggy, but he's certainly not the cool guy he used to be. No, no. It's kind of weird. Anyway. I guess a more relevant uh, sort of bit of trivia is, of course, the renewed popularity of Contagion due to the popularity, sorry, due to the popularity, <laughs> due to the current events with the coronavirus pandemic, uh, because both diseases are quite similar. Interestingly, in March 2020, uh, Contagion was the seventh most popular film on iTunes. Wow. Uh, which, yeah, is pretty remarkable given that's nine years old. And it's the most popular catalogue title for Warner Brothers, only behind the Harry Potter films in recent times. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I wonder if I wonder if other movies like, you know, we talked about Outbreak a touch earlier or like even something like Quarantine, you know, that one where they're stuck in the building. It's more of a sort of zombie movie or whatever. I wonder if they're all going gangbusters as well right now. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I don't think the zombie films would like World War Z or any, anything like that because they're a little bit too depressing. And we've already had The Walking Dead on TV. That's still on the TV now. So I don't know. I, I mean, I guess one of the selling points of Contagion uh, is that for a mainstream audience, it has recognisable faces on the tin. It has Matt Damon, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Winslet, etc. So, you know, it's more of a, a star vehicle. It's something that you and I would say our dads might watch, whereas some of those other films aren't stacked with the same sort of, you know, A-list cast and so probably just won't garner the same attention as Contagion. Um, Also, too, because the disease in Contagion is so similar to coronavirus, then I guess it just sort of is something that people are clinging to to sort of see how things might unfold in real life. Mm, mm, Definitely. I think the other interesting coincidence about Contagion is at the end of the film we see how a bat does a poo, the poo lands somehow near some pigs, the pig picks up the poo, catches the virus. Ben, Ben, it drops a piece of banana. It doesn't do a shit. Oh, that's right. It's banana, <laughs> of course. Sorry. That explains it. Yeah, yeah. A pig eating banana makes more sense than a pig eating poo. <laughs> eating bat shit, bat guano. I mean, I'm sure a pig would. Yeah, but in this case, it's a banana. And that's pretty similar to how they think COVID-19 started. It started with a bat, got transferred to an animal that was at the wet market in Wuhan, and then contracted by a human. So that's pretty prophetic and an amazing coincidence. The other thing, I guess, as just a general point is a bit trivia, is that Kate Winslet filmed her role in 10 days for what that's worth. And most of the cast took very little pay to be in the movie. And Gwyneth Paltrow basically worked for free and shot her scenes in three days. So I'm thinking that basically this is the case, a bit like Days Gone By with Woody Allen, that people want to work with Sonnenberg and in a world where cinema is increasingly filled with superhero movies and sort of big budget escapism, it probably appealed to people that this was something that was an important film to tell. 
One other part, one last bit of trivia, Gabe, is that Marianne Cotillard was actually six months pregnant when she finished shooting her scenes. So I'm not sure if that would have had any impact on what scenes she was shooting and that changed the story. Probably not, but that may have potentially had an impact on the roles that she, on the scenes that she was in. I guess it'd be interesting to see a sort of script to screen comparison and if there was more for her character and Soderbergh just felt like he didn't need it. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. There is one last bit of trivia which you will love. Oh, hit me. The fake head of Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> okay. that was used for the autopsy scene was originally created for the movie Seven back in 95 but was never used. No way. Yeah. I don't, really? Yeah. That's awesome. That's great. That is awesome, right? Very nice. I mean, that that is quite a disgusting scene in Contagion when they sort of um, autopsy her and peel her scalp back. I mean, to Gwyneth's... To, to Gwyneth's credit, she has a very, very unglamorous role in this, doesn't she? Yeah, she looks, I guess, good in the sense that she's sort of wearing makeup and is dressed up in the flashback scenes to the casino and the airport. But for most of the film, she's made to look pretty terrible on purpose because she's contracted the disease. Her skin's translucent. We can see veins and bruises. And then we see that scene of her dead at the end. It's pretty... Mm. Disconcerting. Well, that's that's a nice bit of trivia. I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pass that one on the old fake head. And I'm look. I'm glad they didn't use it in seven. So everyone wins. <laughs> um, let's jump to perfect sense trivia. So there's this great scene when they lose their taste and they're in the bath together, both Hugh McGregor and Eva Green, and they start consuming cleaning products. Like he's actually licking some shaving cream off her, and they start eating a bar of soap, which I think is a really interesting representation as to how they can't taste or feel this in any way. For what it's worth, that bar of soap was actually white chocolate and so was the shaving cream. Yeah, I mean- Makes sense for it. Yeah, totally. But there is that, there's a later montage where everyone just starts gorging themselves on food. And I did think to myself, yeah, you can't taste it, but surely it's going to wreck your guts. I mean, eating a bar of soap probably, you know, isn't going to be the most pleasant experience five minutes or five hours later. And you're sitting in a bath. Yeah, exactly. No, it can't be very good at all. Um, the only other remaining facts, of course, in terms of casting and stuff is that Ewan McGregor starred in Young Adam back in 2003 for director David McKenzie. And, of course, Ewan McGregor and Ewan Bremer, who works as his uh, 2IC chef in the film, were both in train spotting together. Oh, I love it when the Ewans get on screen together. And also, um, just to throw it out there, uh, Young Adam it's a good movie. It's worth uh, seeking out as well if you haven't seen it. I think that film was famous for the wrong reason that everyone was obsessed with it having a full frontal shot of Hugh McGregor's genitals, right? Yeah, but you can see his dong in a whole bunch of movies. Like if that's what you're after, you know, we've got, we got a laundry list of movies we could recommend. <laughs> All right, let's jump to uh, Spot the Aussie. Were there any Aussies in Contagion? Well, <laughs> does the character that Jude Law plays count? Is he playing Australian? I think he is, right? Oh. Fuck, this is one of the most egregious accents, uh, you know. Let's say that for the awards. I feel that's oh, going to be a contender for really? the Nicolas Cage Award, right? Do we Do we want to, do we want to, okay, we'll talk about it then, but oh my God, all right. Uh, and were there any Aussies in Perfect Sense? I can't think of any. Yeah, I didn't think I spotted, I don't think I, is this a no Aussie double? I think it is, I think it is. All right, let's jump to Marketing Methodology, Madness and Missteps. It appears that both films were released in pretty conventional ways. Interestingly, though, for Contagion, I love this, 
Warner Brothers actually built two giant Petri dishes treated with bacteria and fungi and then set them in a Toronto storefront window. And so over several days, the bacteria and fungi specimens grew out to spell the name of the film and also form sort of biohazard symbols, which is pretty cool. What? I don't think you do that right now, (laughs) but I like that idea. That's bold. Basically trying to show you, yeah, it's very bold, right? And you'd also hope that they are airtight Petri dishes too. Yeah, imagine if that virus got out. (laughs) Exactly. All right, let's jump to the box office. So which movie was the box office champ? Have a guess. Oh, well, surely it's Contagion, right? Yep, Contagion was made in a budget of $60 million US. It did $75.5 million domestically in the US and another $61 million internationally for a worldwide total of $136.5 million. Whereas, in comparison, this is terrible, Perfect Sense made only 3000 US dollars in the US and another $930,000 internationally for a worldwide total of $933,500. I mean, that US number, I presume it was only ever released on sort of one screen in New York for a week then, right? Yeah. You know, it's not like it's a thousand screen rollout or something like that. So I think that's one of those perfect cases where they've got to release it on one cinema to satisfy a contractual relationship or arrangement with a broadcaster or a distributor or a financier. So it's a token re-release. Mm, totally, totally. Um, but yeah, pretty disappointing. I mean, I couldn't find the budget online, but I would say this film would have cost what, conservatively about $10 million? I, yeah, but I don't necessarily think much more than that. I mean, it's all quite contained sets. There's only a few actors. There's not any really huge set pieces. And the ones that sort of show a degree of scale are quite artfully done and they're often just filming through something to give a sense. With a soft focus in the background so there's no need to actually try and yeah. dress the entire street with burning cars or anything like that. Yeah, and then they use a lot of newsreel-type footage um, to show people, you know, becoming rageaholics or whatever. Um, yeah, it's a great example of actually using the budget restrictions to artfully design a film that looks fantastic and doesn't actually make you aware of the lack of budget. Totally, totally. All right, Let's jump to Rotten Tomatoes. So have a guess. Which movie impressed the critics? I'd like to say that they've both been reviewed very well, but I don't know. I guess I wonder with perfect sense. I'm interested to know. Okay, so on the tomato meter, Contagion has a score of 85% with critics and is certified fresh. In contrast, Perfect Sense scored 57% with critics. So surprisingly low, I thought, for that film. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I I can't help but feel like whether you like it or not, it's at least an interesting movie. So I'm surprised it got that amount of bad reviews. Um, But there you go. Yeah, I agree. I'm sure with more reviews we've done better. To give you a bit of a comparison, on the Tomato Meter score for Contagion, It's a score aggregated from 268 reviews, whereas The Perfect Sense, it's only from 63 reviews. And they might have also been Sundance Film Festival reviews, making up a strong proportion of those as well. So I get a feeling that with more critics reviewing it, it would have actually scored higher than that. Yeah, interesting. All right, let's jump to the audience score. Have a guess. Um, 
my guess would be that Contagion has a really good audience score and Perfect Sense has a very low audience score. Well, interestingly enough, they're almost exactly the same. Really? Huh. Contagion scored at 63% with people in the crowd compared to 59%. So surprisingly quite similar. But it'd be interesting to see whether that score for Contagion will go up or down over time because it actually might be the sort of film that makes people nervous and they might actually give it a lower score because they don't feel good after watching it. Or they might actually watch to the end and discover that there's actually a cure and it actually might be reassuring for them. I suspect that it could be the former and the score actually might go down over time. But time will tell. Interesting, interesting. All right, let's jump to best poster. So for the podcast listeners who can't see, Contagion's got a yellowish hue throughout the film and that kind of you know, that's a sickly colour and that actually applies also to the design of the poster. The poster is essentially the word contagion written in kind of like a biohazard style font with a lot of grime over the top. And one of the posters actually has a photo of Gwyneth Paltrow's dead face in the right bottom corner, eyes wide open. <laughs> yeah. Like it's quite no. disturbing. Like so I, it's all those shots they have of the cast, which ordinarily you'd use to try and promote the film, except here she looks goddamn awful because she is dead on the poster. Yeah, totally. I, I'm really surprised her and her reps okayed that one. Um, but good on them for doing that because that's a real kind of haunting image, I suppose, in an otherwise kind of, look, it's a dull poster. It's just a bunch of heads of people looking like they're in the midst of doing something, but it's not a particularly exciting piece of artwork. Well, speaking of not exciting artwork, the poster of A Perfect Sense is terrible. 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 So describe it to the audience listening. It's basically just a side-on-profile shot of Ewan McGregor kissing or about to kiss Eva Green within like a dark red border their names, and perfect sense. It tells you nothing about the film. It is the most uninteresting poster I think we have possibly described during this podcast series. What do you think? Yeah, it's quite awful, isn't it? I mean, at least with Contagion, they're just, you know, they're shots of the actors' heads. But like you say, with the font, the treatment of the font and, and at least what they're doing, you get a sense of, oh, I get what this movie is about. But this one... You, you would have no idea that this was a, you know, uh, romantic drama set against the backdrop of a sort of science fiction premise. I guess you'd just think it's about them smooching. Even the title makes no sense within the context of this poster. It's really bad. I don't know why they went with this. Yeah, it's absolutely awful. Um, I mean, I don't think the film failed necessarily because of the poster, but this poster certainly wouldn't have drawn anyone into the audience at all. It's terrible. I think the other interesting thing about it is we should actually discuss the best title. So first of all, I think we agree that the winner for the best poster goes definitely to Contagion, right? Yes. Now, title. Let's do the best title here. I'm going with Contagion because I think Perfect Sense is trying to be clever with the title, but it doesn't tell me enough about the film from the title. And maybe the combination of it and the poster or a double whammy. But what are your thoughts for the best title winner? Oh, I mean, Contagion, hands down. I know we joke about it does what's on the tin, but it's an evocative title that you go, oh, that sounds like an interesting movie. Yeah, I don't I don't love the title, Perfect Sense. I mean, I think it would be a really hard movie to come up with a title for. I wonder if they filled a whiteboard with options because it's not such a straight-down-the-line movie. 
But, um, yeah, Contagion. Contagion's a great title. Yeah, I mean, in defence of the producers of Perfect Sense, it is actually a hard concept to visually represent as a poster and also as a title. Like, it's a great concept for a film, but it's a very hard idea to express visually. So it's not an excuse, but it's a reason. All right, let's jump to the Bill Fleck Big Break Award. So just like Billy Bob and Ben Affleck who jumped from indie films into the Hollywood big time, who got their big break in these twin movies starting with Contagion? Well, I don't know. It's a pretty star-studded cast. It's not like I've got a nominee. I've got a nominee. Oh, do you? Okay. Dimitri Martin, the comedian, <laughs> playing a doctor. Uh, that was bizarre. He's one of the few characters that's borderline miscast, I guess. But, yeah, okay. I agree he was miscast, but it was a good break for him. Yeah, okay, fair. All right. We'll give it to give it to him. Give it to him then. And as for Perfect Sense, uh, there weren't really any breakout stars who have kicked on to do anything since these films. If anything, it was actually a lot of faces we'd seen before. So I don't know, maybe one of those rabbits that escaped from the lab at the end was trying to that was their big opportunity for a close-up. Break out. I get it. Well done. Well done. All right. So I'm going to give it to Dimitri. Okay. All right. Let's go to the Before They Were Famous Award or the Blink and You'll Miss Them Award. So Contagion. I actually had here, knowing that this was in 2001, sorry, this was in 2011, not long after Breaking Bad, I had Brian Cranston down. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So had he done more than one or two seasons of Breaking Bad by this point? I think he'd done like two. And, of course, he was on that TV show beforehand with that annoying kid, but he wasn't the Brian Cranston that we know now. So <laughs> it was kind of like a before he was famous as a movie star. Yeah, okay. Okay, fair, fair. How about Perfect Sense? Well, I don't know. Again, it's a tough one, isn't it? Uh, no one really jumps out, do they? They were all pretty established beforehand. No, and it's quite a small cast, isn't it? Yeah. I reckon by default, Brian gets it. Cranston. All right. Next, the Tommy Lee Jones Showstiller Award, named after the iconic performance from Tommy Lee in The Fugitive. So who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? Now, do we say this has to be somewhat scenery chewing? No, that's the Nicolas Cage Award later on. Okay. Okay. Yes, very good. I- All right. Let's start with Contagion. There's one guy in this who I think wait, wait. does a lot with a little. Okay, I think I know who you're going to say. Shall we, on three, we'll both say the name? Yeah, okay, all right. Do we say three, then the name, or do we? One, two, three, name. Okay, all right. Okay. So this is Contagion. This is the award for the person who did a lot with a little. All right. The Tommy Lee Jones Show Stiller Award. Okay, all right. All right. Shall you count or shall I count? I'll count, I'll count. All right. One, two, three, John, John Hawks. Hawks. <laughs> <laughs> nice, snap. Totally. How good is he? Yeah, he's good. In every role he's in, I mean, he does something very similar in a film that you and I love, which is Michael Mann's Miami Vice, oh, yeah. where he appears at the start for about five minutes. And he's so captivating. He's fantastic. And same thing here. Like, he just evokes sympathy. And for anyone who doesn't know who we're talking about, he's- the guy in the 2012 film, I think it is, called The Sessions, where he plays a character who has an iron lung and essentially sees a sex therapist. He was also in Winter's Bone, I think, and he's often been cast in roles where he's playing, I guess you'd say, a, a hick, something like that. Yeah, um, or Martha Macy May Marlene, where he plays a very charismatic cult leader. 
He's great in Lincoln in a small role. He's he's just whenever he turns up, he just really elevates it. Small town crime, he's good in three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. He's basically one of those iconic character actors, isn't he? Yeah, I mean Deadwood. He was in Deadwood as the as uh, uh, what's the bloke from Justified? Timothy Oliphant's business partner. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's so good. He's so good. All right, and in Perfect Sense, again, small cast, so no one really there. So I think Woodsy gets it. Hawksy gets it. I was going to say, should we do it on three for perfect sense and just see what anyone <laughs> yeah. says? Yeah, no one. All right. No, get, give, it to, give it to Hawks. All right, John Hawks, the Tommy Lee Jones Showstyle Award is coming your way when careers are up and running and back to normal. Let's jump to the Dustin Diamond Award. Who? Like, we got to change that name. Let's can, can we just call it the Mickey Rourke Award? Oh, Mickey. I asked to be called the Dustin Diamond thing as a lark, but it's so stupid. All right, so you want to rename the award from now on again as the Mickey Rourke? Yes. Okay, so what's it been so far? It's changed names quite a few times. Oh, I can't remember. We've had a lot of stupid ones because I'm continually trying to out stupid myself. But let's just call it the Mickey Rourke Award for now. So walk me through why you want to change it to Mickey Rourke. Well, Mickey Rourke's sort of trashed his career a number of times. I, probably, arguably, he's trashed it more than John Travolta, hasn't he, and managed to come back. But he hasn't been back for a while now, has he? No, he's due. He's due, okay. He's due. Well, for the listeners who aren't familiar with Mickey Rourke's filmography, let's just talk through really quickly the two or three highlights of his his career. or And that might be not necessarily artistic, but also like what he's famous for. Go. Well, I mean, early in his career, things like Angel Heart and Wild Orchid, um, when he was sort of a really young, handsome actor, Year of the Dragon, Pope of Greenwich Village, Rumblefish, Diner, Barfly. And then he sort of became a professional boxer, got his face beat a little bit, disappeared for a while, turned up in just sort of... Had lots of plastic surgery to try and repair his smashed up face. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, and then he came back, he exploded back onto the scene with what, like... The Wrestler? Um, the, the Wrestler, Sin City, Domino, Man on Fire. Iron Man 2? Iron Man, yeah, to a lesser extent, Iron Man But too. he made his money. Like, he, he was so popular with those indie films. Like, the rest of I think he was nominated for an Oscar, or the the film certainly was. Oh, yeah, he was. Which then means he got a big paycheck for Iron Man 2, but then apparently was such a weirdo during the filming of that, it kind of then crushed his ongoing, you know, casting in big-budget Hollywood films. And then what's And, it- yeah, now he's gone back to – well, now he's just back to – just sort of very niche DTV movies, I think. All right. Well, it's now known as the Mickey Rourke Award. So let's start with Contagion. Who hasn't made the most of their opportunities since that film? Hmm. Enrico Colantani? <laughs> Who's that? He plays. He, I don't know. I don't know. Can I tell you who I think should be nominated for this one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it Enrico Colantani? I can't find his name straight away, uh, but he's a fantastic actor who is talking to all of the criminals in The Dark Knight, the Batman film, on the TV. And in this film, in Contagion, he's the one that actually kidnaps Marianne Cotillard. And he's an actor which who just doesn't appear enough in movies. And I can't recall his name. Do you know the person I'm talking about? The, the Chinese actor? Yeah. Yeah. Um, his name is uh, Chin Han. Chin Han. So he's the character or the actor who kidnaps Marianne Cotillard and- I've always loved him since The Dark Knight. I'm always surprised that he hasn't kicked on to have more roles because in that small role, he's the, for the viewers who have seen The Dark Knight, he's the guy who takes all the money from the criminals in Gotham and then flees to Hong Kong and Morgan Freeman's character has to go and meet him in Hong Kong 
and plants a phone that then lets Batman penetrate the building and kidnap that guy and take him back to America to be handed across to the cops. And he's only in a few scenes, but he's just got so much presence on screen. And I actually think he has movie star appeal on screen. But for some reason, he just doesn't appear in more movies. And there'd be so many Marvel movies I thought he'd be a shoo-in for. So he, I think, you know, is a potential contender. He was in Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Ben. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. So, okay. So he actually has kicked on. But, again, not enough. Also, uh, I'm going to put down Jennifer Ely. Oh, she's great. She's brilliant. Like she was in this film around the same time as The Hurt Locker. No, not a hurt. Uh, Zero, Zero Dark Thirty. Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah, she's the sort of CIA ch- base chief yeah. in Zero Dark Thirty. She's very good in that too. Actually, I'm going to put her down as my nominee for this one because I think she's spectacular and isn't in enough films at all. All right, I'll co-sponsor that. Okay, and Perfect Sense? Um, well- Again, small cast, so- I, I love it when you and Bremer turns up in things. Okay, all right. I've got him down for an award later on. Okay, well, we'll, we'll share him around then. Give it to Jennifer Ely. Jennifer gets it. Okay, okay. Next award is the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. So who came out on top in each of these movies, either in front of the camera or behind, starting with Contagion? Well, surely someone has to win it from Contagion anyway. I mean, given Perfect Sense's record, I guess no one really came out on top from that. So Contagion Soderbergh? Yep. Scott Z. Burns? I had Scott Z. Burns down. I think uh, in in the history books, this film will actually have aged better given its resurgence during this pandemic. And given how prophetic it is, that's a testament to his research, anticipating what would actually happen in a real-life crisis. So the film, I think, has lasted and left a better legacy than it had before COVID-19. So I don't know, as someone who's basically got out of crystal ball and predicted so much about where we are right now. I've got him as my chicken, chicken dinner, or my winner, winner, chicken dinner award winner so far. And Perfect Sense, because that film didn't really catch on with anyone in terms of awards or anyone leveraging it for another opportunity, then I could nominate anyone at all. So I've got Scott Z. Burns just by default as the winner. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Contagion is certainly both the high point of his collaboration with Soderbergh and potentially on his, you know, very impressive resume. So give it to Scott Z. Burns, not to be confused with Scott X. Burns or Scott W. Burns or, you know, all the other Scott Burnses out there that need to be differentiated. Or Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Well, there you go, Mr. Burns indeed. All right, Scotty gets it. Let's jump to the Best Dialogue Award. Uh, so what's your favourite quote, starting with Contagion? I can jump in first if you want. All right, what if what have you got? There's a great quote by Dr Ellis, uh, which is, someone doesn't have to weaponise the bird flu, the birds are doing that. I love that. That's great. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's great. I also like uh, somewhere in the world the wrong pig met up with the wrong bat and I suppose that just speaks to the sort of chaotic nature of the way a disease like this can just be born. Yeah, that's right. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just luck or bad luck. Yeah. Um, I also love uh, Dr. Ian Sussman's uh, disparaging comment, Alan, which is, blogging is not writing, it's graffiti with punctuation. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, what about, uh, it's a bad day to be a rhesus monkey? <laughs> that's great. I like it. I like it. Um, also, there's a great one, which is uh, when they're trying to convey the seriousness of it. 
And I feel this is what you'd actually say to some world leaders who just have been so slow off the mark and disbelieving of science. And it's a quote by Alan, the Jude Law character, who says, Godzilla, King Kong, Frankenstein, all in one. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> um, okay, perfect sense. Now, this film isn't really a quotable film. Did any kind of quotes jump out to you at all? Well, I said before I like the narration, but I'm really um, I'm hazarded to try and speak the narration myself because I really like it. I like the way it's delivered and I like it within the context of the movie, but I feel that if I just uh, uh, recite it rather rotely, I'll actually put people off. Yeah, the narration is very much like Terence Malick, isn't it? Like that kind of poetic voiceover, uh, which is both commenting on what's happening on screen but also giving you extra information as well. There wasn't anything that jumped out to me, although there was almost this poetic uh, poem about fat and flour that Ewan McGregor says over and over again when he's swearing at Eva Green and just smashing stuff. And I can't recall more than those references of fat and flour, fat and flour, but it it was like disturbingly poetic. Um, mm. I'd like to listen to it again, actually. Mm. Um, all right, I'm going to give it to Contagion just because there were simply more quotable lines. Fair enough. All right, next, the Nicolas Cage Chewing the Scenery Award. So I think we know the winner or the nominee from Contagion. It's got to be, should we do the count of three again? No, yeah, okay. One, two, two three. three. Jude Law. Fuck, what is he doing? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, so he's, he's playing, playing Australian, Australian, is that right? right? <laughs> well, it's hard to tell. Like, I've talked to a few people about this, and his accent is so bad that it's it's difficult to know. Yeah, I agree. like. Is he not playing? It's not a New Zealander. Yeah, yeah. What the? F- I don't know. I, I think he's playing Australian, although he's not characterised overtly on screen as that, and it's not a consistent accent. Whatever he's doing, yeah. I, I look. I didn't really like his character. I suppose that's the point. His character's meant to be a bit of a weasel. But well, they've they've given him bad teeth. Yeah, that's right. And also, you know, Jude Law can do that in his sleep. I mean, Jude Law has done a great job over the years of reinventing himself from being a leading, good-looking man. And as his hair's receded, he's kind of seized on that and kind of often made himself, you know, kind of a smug asshole. He was in that film where I think he shaved his head to accentuate his receding hairline, and I think he broke his nose or did something. You know, he plays that character. I can't recall the film, but. He's basically tried to uglify himself in the past to try and, you know, become the unlikable but charismatic character on screen. And I guess because it's just a fun thing to do. Like it's like character acting, right? You're kind of like a pig in mud. Oh, totally. Um, I mean, not since Quentin Tarantino's Australian accent in Django has there been such a terrible one. Or what was her name? Kate McKinnon in that that bridesmaids type movie. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The murder one, whatever it was called. Oh. I just realised it was Dom Hemingway. That was a film he- Oh, yeah, yeah. That's good. Played movie. an unappealing character. And that particular film, he's fantastic. But yeah, in this film, he was a small character and it was a pretty Nicolas Cage chewing scenery type of performance. Awful, awful. How about Perfect Sense? Um, I don't know. It was all fairly low key, don't you think? It was. I didn't quite buy- Connie Nielsen appearing. She played the character Jenny and listeners might know her from Gladiator and Wonder Woman. I guess it was a small role, but it was a really odd addition. I've got actually her down for the next award, so I might just park that one. So shall we give it to Jude and move on? Let's do it. All right. And move on. Yeah. 
The next award, Taking a Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. For Contagion, I nominated Gwyneth Paltrow. (laughs) Although, as it transpires, apparently she was barely paid anything. So I guess she was doing it for the opportunity to work with Sodenberg and be on an important film, so to speak. But, yeah, she's barely in the film, but has a a strong role at the start when she is. Yeah, totally. I think, think ironically, she paid not much, but... I think it's fair to give it to Gwynny. All right. I also had uh, Connie Nielsen down in perfect sense because I don't think you needed her in this film. Connie Nielsen is a great actor and she could easily pick up one of the next awards coming up, which is the Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. But she's a striking woman in terms of being very attractive and I don't think you needed someone like her in this role, because I think she played Eva Green's mum, right? Oh, uh, was it? I can't recall, but like she was, a, she was a mentor figure. But I don't think you needed someone like her in this role. I think by being actually quite attractive, it was actually distracting in this particularly grounded film. Anyway, that's just me. That's my predilection. <laughs> so it looks like Gwyneth Paltrow takes the Paycheck Award, which speaks for itself. All right, jumping on. The next award, the Stephen Tobolowsky Award a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy, named after iconic supporting actor Stephen Tobolowsky from Groundhog Day. All right, Gabe, who triggered Hey, It's That Guy when he or she appeared on screen, starting with Contagion? I mean, Soderbergh movies are a goldmine for this kind of award, aren't they? They are, they are. I mean, I actually had Elliot Gould, who we discussed earlier, uh, just because he's appeared in so many of Soderbergh's films. So my nominee is Gould. Right. I mean, I, I guess there's a whole bunch of people we've sort of already discussed, like Elliot Gould or Brian Cranston or um, Shin Han or Enrico Colantoni. And I'm going to go for Enrico Colantoni. All right. How about Perfect Sense? Um, this one's got to be you and Bremer, right? No. What about- Who played Spart in Trainspotting. What about Dennis Lawson, who's Ewan McGregor's uncle, I think, and played uh, Wedge in Star Wars? Wow. Okay. Uh, There's some deep cuts for both of those. You know what? I'm going to leave it to you to decide who gets this one. Go for it. Uh, Well, hey, look, the other nominee could be Stephen Delane, who plays the sort of boss doctor in perfect sense, who fans of Game of Thrones might remember as Stannis Baratheon. I'm saving him for my next award, which I'll get to. Well, you don't let me know of any of these things, Ben. How am I supposed to <laughs> preempt these? It's a live recording, all right? Fair, fair. I don't believe. Have you given anything else to Wedge from Star Wars? No. Okay, well, he can have it then, can't he? Done. Wedge, there's an award being couriered, actually, no, probably by a slow boat to you. You'll get a call in three months. Great. All right, jumping on. The Delroy Lindo Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. So, Contagion, you go first. Great actors who aren't cast often enough. Ah, I mean, all of the great actors in Contagion are cast often. Yeah, they are. Um, There was that guy I mentioned earlier. Uh, I thought Jennifer Ealing isn't cast enough. I think she's just great. So, I have Jennifer Ely again, potentially. Um, Perfect sense, I Stephen Delane. You mentioned him earlier from Game of Thrones. But also, he is awesome, absolutely kick-ass, in Tony Scott's Spy Game with Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. So remind me, in that, does he play the sort of antagonistic CIA officer who's against Redford? I can't quite remember. You nailed it, yep. Right, right. Right, he does a good American accent. Yeah, really good accent. He's great. Like, he's a really captivating antagonist. Mm. Mm. What else has he been in? He's in that 
uh, Anton Fuqua King Arthur playing Merlin. Yeah, exactly. He's one of those actors who, you know, will never be a leading man. Uh, he he actually has a great face that he can play both a goodie and a baddie. Um, you know, he has a particular facial structure and hairline that makes him transcend those roles. And I think in Game of Thrones he actually uses that to his advantage to kind of play the murky morality between good and bad. Um, so I'm going to give it to him. Do you know what movie Stephen Delane's really great in um, that just popped into my head? Do you do you remember seeing Michael Winterbottom's uh, late 90s film Welcome to Sarajevo? Oh, yeah. He's really good in that too. All right. Can we give it to Delane? I think he deserves it. Okay, let's give it to Let's give it to Stephen Delane. All right. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds. Gabe, who steals the cake, if anyone, in these very grounded films? I only had just one out of both films, and that was Alan Crumpy Weedy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's certainly a- Who's Chewed Law's character? That's a funny name, isn't it? Um, Yeah, there's not- I guess movies that try and set themselves in a very- real worlds often don't have hilariously awesome names and Perfect Sense doesn't even try. You know, there's just Dennis Lawson who played, you know, Wedge from Star Wars. His character in this is just Boss. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, like they didn't even bother. I wonder if in the script he was just called Boss and then, you know, you'd have lines like, oh, Ewan McGregor talks to his boss. Well, our film from our last review, which The Road, I mean, that was just boy, man and woman. So that... Really stripped it back. Yeah, but that feels like it speaks to the the tone of that. And the time, yeah. Here it just seems a bit lazy, you know. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. All right. I, th- I think uh, Jude Law's character gets it. Yeah, crump weedy. Yep. All right. The Memento Award, named for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatched these movies, Contagion. Ah. I mean, I guess I didn't forget about them, but like you said earlier, just the stuff about people constantly touching things. But I love that scene where Kate Winslet breaks down how many times you touch your face. Um, and I also feel like that R naught scene where she explains what the R naught number is feels particularly resonant now. And maybe when I first watched it, that scene sort of breezed by, but I felt myself this time really paying attention to it. Um, what about you? Yeah, I agree precisely with those examples. And as for Perfect Sense, I can't comment because I watched it for the first time. But for you, did anything kind of resonate differently on the rewatch? Yeah, weirdly the whole thing, because I, I didn't have a huge memory of the the film, I guess, and particularly the tone and style of the movie. I didn't remember it being quite that stylized. So <laughs> I'm giving it to the entirety of Perfect Sense. Oh, wow. Okay. In that case, uh, look, I'm going to nominate Contagion here. Are you nominating Perfect Sense? Because that's a pretty big call. Yeah, yeah, but how are you going to beat the entirety of Perfect Sense? You can't. Yeah, okay, it's a dead rubber. So no one's taking home that award. All right, uh, last award or the let's, – it's, well, it's been known as the Die Hard Award and we'll keep that name for now, but if imitation is the ultimate form of flattery, did either of these movies leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? So not yet – but I think just based on COVID-19, they'll all be copying not Contagion or Perfect Sense, but there will be many films called COVID-19, coronavirus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, going forward. What do you think? It makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, these aren't- Screenwriters the- are at home. Screenwriters are bored. <laughs> that's right. That's right. They're looking out their window going, but I mean, neither of these movies, by the same token, are the first 
films about this. I mean, have you seen Andromeda Strain, for instance? Exactly, yeah. And then the remake with Will Smith called Legend? No, that's a different movie, dude. That's I Am Legend. <laughs> what are you talking about? I thought they were the same story repurposed. No, I Am Legend. No, no. I Am Legend, the book, is what the basis of Will Smith's I Am Legend is. Ah, right. Andromeda Strain. Look, if you haven't seen Andromeda Strain, it's really great. And it was remade, I think, as a as a TV series or something. Gotcha. But it's a... um. It's it's mostly contained just within a laboratory as three scientists try and find a cure to a a a a particularly deadly virus. Um, I think it's based on a book by Michael Crichton. Yeah, yeah, and directed by Robert Wise. Anyway, it's really great um, from 1971. So I'd uh, I'd recommend that. Nice tip. All right. So time will tell, and we'll see if there will be any others. Which brings us to. The time of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and relocated to a sluggish cruise ship. Imagine this. Gabe, we've got an opportunity here. We've been asked by Hollywood in light of the coronavirus to try and do a sequel to Contagion or Perfect Sense, right? Screenwriters are at home, aboard, so are writers and directors and uh, producers, People want to try and cash in on the zeitgeist of now. So if these films are both about an unprecedented pandemic that sweeps across the world and we've got to make a film try and cash in on this crisis for these big Hollywood executives, which film do we make a sequel about and what's our pitch to make it? Go. Well, I think we can probably pretty quickly rule out perfect sense. Unless you wanted to make a movie about a whole bunch of deaf, dumb, blind people crawling around on the ground. It sounds unrelentingly bleak. Can I just say that Perfect Sense would have to be the most unmakeable movie sequel? (laughs) Yeah, brutal. Right? Because in the film, at the stages where the characters lose the sense of smell and taste, there aren't many tricks employed except for visuals to try and convey that to the audience. But when they lose their sense of uh, hearing... They just drop the audio to nothing, which makes perfect sense. It's very evocative. Yeah, it's quite bold. Yeah. It's great. So if they were to follow through with that at the end of the movie, you'd just cut to black and stay at black because, of course, the characters are blind and therefore so is the audience, in which case you just hear lots of fumbling and mumbling. Actually, people- I will say this, cheap to make. Yeah, that's right. They could talk, but they couldn't hear each other. Okay, so we're not doing perfect sense. No, no. We're making movies, not radio plays, goddammit. So- Let's then go for a remake of, no, let's do a sequel to Contagion. Okay. The question is, is it a spiritual sequel or a sequel with the same cast? Well, I think I think we want the name. We certainly want the name. I don't know if we need all of the cast. Maybe there's one or two recurring roles. What's it called, Ben, actually? You might know the answer to this. When a disease comes back, when you think you've beaten it, but then, bang, it's back. Oh, I don't know. But, uh, I mean, look. We'll get the title, but, I mean, Contagion surely could just become, as a sequel, Contagious. Yeah? Yeah? Oh, yeah. Do you mean, well, isn't the Contagions? <laughs> like Contagions. Oh, like it's like aliens, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, like James Cameron walked in to the uh, execs at Fox and wrote Alien, and then he drew an S at the end of Alien. This is the legendary story as to how he got the sequel to Aliens funded. He then drew the S and then drew two lines vertically through the S to say, we won't just have one alien, we'll have aliens 
and that'll make us some serious cash money. Yeah. You'll walk in there, write contagion, and then put an S as a dollar sign. But I, I suppose what's that plot? That's just what's worse than one disease, five diseases. Oh, right, nice. <laughs> at once, yeah. Is that, is that really? I don't know. I don't know if that's the the plot you want to go for. Maybe it's just a a worse disease. Well, the first thing is, do you follow the same disease as the sequel, which is the next stage, or do you follow some of the same characters 10 years later and the question is, has the world learnt so that when another virus, you know, sweeps across the world as a pandemic, will they handle things any differently? Or do you follow the timeline of the first film just somewhere else? No, I think we need to we need to make it bigger, don't we? Isn't that our job as as hack screenwriters to somehow up the stakes? You don't just want the same story again with a different set of people. You want you want like if the first one was like a a bat gave the virus to a pig and then they gave it to humans. It's like humans give it to some sort of elephant that gives it to a tiger that then gives it back to humans. So you know it's super dangerous. Okay, so if we did that, is it another disease that's worse? Or does the disease actually mutate and become more like a zombie-like disease like in the Will Smith vehicle, I Am Legend? Yeah, I mean, maybe. I suppose then are we then just making a zombie movie as opposed to, um, uh, like you said earlier, using what the characters have learnt from uh, the previous film to could they then take those learnings and apply them to just a much more virulent uh, disease and and is that more interesting than Matt Damon's character of Joe Everyman blasting away at twenty eight days later like versions of his one surviving kid? Hey, that's it. You nailed it, Matt Damon. He is an every guy, but he's not because it's revealed in Contagion that he actually is immune to it. So therefore, this average guy can become a messiah-like figure. He can become the opposite of patient zero. So essentially, as the world dies around him, he hops in his car with his gun that he's stolen from his neighbour and then tries to save his daughter, which he's doing at the end of Contagion, but that carries on because they think they've got a cure, but it turns out they don't. And so the question becomes, does he become a willing saviour and they can somehow try and find a vaccine from him? Or is it a case that basically bit like Book of Eli, he just sort of wanders the earth oh. with his daughter. He's the Mad Max character, right? He becomes a loner and therefore, but he can survive because he's, he's immune. So base, basically he's a threat to people, but also potentially their saviour. And it's Matt Damon. He's a star. Uh, true. And our Hollywood executives want a star. They do. And I guess, I guess, I guess if we only were going to bring one other character back, maybe we could bring back... Jude Law as a kind of you know uh, uh, devil to his uh, to his messiah um, that this Alan Crumweedy has become you know something of a of a folk legend amongst those sort of QAnon type idiots. Or maybe he's a UK politician. Maybe he's actually in a position of influence now. Oh, totally. Or he could be perhaps a Richard Branson s character in terms of wealth. But, you know, he's a bit more like a Bond villain. He's perhaps, uh, you know, looking after his best interests at the expense of everyone else. And so you're right, we have the devil up against the new Jesus. Uh, I, I think it's called a relapse. Is it called a relapse when a disease comes back? Or maybe that's just for alcoholics. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> 
It's called Reinfection, the sequel. Yeah, totally. Uh, okay, so what's our pitch going to be? Is it Matt Damon? Are we doing a pitch? With, are we doing a sequel with Matt Damon? Is he the star vehicle to drive this film forward? I think so. I mean, we seem to always go bigger and dumber. So let's. Uh, oh, hang on. Can I go smaller for a sec? Here's a pitch for a smaller version. Oh, okay. Yeah. Look, always we end up going bigger and dumber. I'd love to hear the the smaller version. This is the Jason Blum version, right? Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. So the studio is saying, let's do it like the Monster Universe, right? So let's throw a $200 million budget at it, much like they did with the Mummy reboot with Tom Cruise. But now we go, no, 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 no. Let's bring in Jason Blum and do the $5 million version. And it's a bit like that film. Who's the lead guy in that TV series on HBO called Succession? What's his name again? Brian Cox. The old guy. There's a film called Autopsy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where Brian Cox is doing an autopsy with an apprentice. It's set in one location, happening almost in real time, and spooky shit starts happening. Yeah, the autopsy of Jane Doe. Exactly. Yep, yep. And autopsies are already quite unsettling enough to depict on screen as it is. But to depict it in real time as the shit starts hitting the fan is a fantastic engrossing story. We could do something similar. Matt Damon pairs up with a scientist and it unfolds in one location in a room as they start to try and cure the virus at the same time. A bit like that final scene in the Will Smith film where he's behind glass, I am legend. So all of the end of World War Z, I suppose, when the WHO are attempting to make a cure for or, or develop a vaccine against zombification. I like that. I'd say if we open it up just a touch and maybe there's a team of people there so we could sort of have them perish from the disease, you know, one by one and just introduce a slight horror movie. After all, we've involved Jason Blum in it. Oh, okay. How about this? How about is Assault on Precinct 13 meets the end of World War Z, Ooh. meets the end of I Am Legend, meets the autopsy of Jane Doe, where basically marauders are outside, right? I like it. I like it. And they're trying to break into this medical facility and Matt Damon is there because, of course, he's the guy that actually, if they analyse his biochemistry, can be the cure. And he's there with someone like Jennifer Ely, who we've always said should be cast more, right? Great. I'm there. I'm there. I'm feeling this. She now feels guilt because in Contagion, the first film, she thought she'd discover the cure. She was so confident in that film, Sodenberg's original film, she injected herself and put her life on the line to try and fast-track this cure to this pandemic. Unfortunately, it transpires she failed. Mm. So now she's across to bear and she must get it right this time. So it's Jennifer Ely, it's Matt Damon, maybe Florence, uh, Lawrence Fishburne's there as well. He's redeemed himself. He dies in the opening five minutes. Nice. He's the he's the new Gwyneth Paltrow. He's the new Gwyneth Paltrow, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so then basically they have a window of, say, 72 hours or five days to try and find the cure before the Marauders, much like a zombie film or Assault on Precinct 13, break in. I like it. And even though they're trying to save humanity, the people on the outside don't know that. And people are dying one by one either because of the virus or perhaps because they go outside and get killed by the Marauders. At the very end of the film, perhaps they do find the cure just as the marauders break in like zombies and kill them, ironically. I like it. I like it. Truly, it is contagions. <laughs> so what's our title going to be to this sequel? Uh, well, probably not Contagion 2 Relapse. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, it could be contagious. Contagious. Or it could be um, contagion hyphen keep on trucking. Um, contagion. Hold on. <laughs> what, are the funny, what are some funny contagion puns? Um, we could, it could be contagion too, still contagious. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean... <sighs> Look, we could just do the um, the classic Hollywood thing, which Blum did with Halloween, and just call it Contagion. All right, no. like, like, not even, not even, not even give it a new one. Just go bang, it's Contagion. It's been nine years, people. That's a lifetime. Exactly, and that is how you make a sequel to Contagion called Contagion. I like it. All right, Gabe. That brings us to the end of the show. A big thanks to our awesome sound editor, Sam Haywood, for making this episode sound so awesome. Gabe, where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? I guess just on uh, Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. And I'll be locked at home, quarantine, rocking backwards and forwards as at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. And you can find all of my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, which now has a dedicated Apple app. All right. Thanks for listening, folks, and we hope you enjoy the show. Stay safe, stay healthy, take care, and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. See you, Gabe. See you, Ben. Stay indoors. Stay indoors.